Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. I'm Nir Minusi, and this is a time of many, many beginnings. Uh, it's the first day of the week, as usual. It's Sunday. It's also the first day of the month of Nisan. Nisan is also the first month of the Jewish year, although we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Uh, on Tishrei, Tishrei is really the seventh month, so this is the first month in the line of months and it's also the beginning of a new season it this is the season of spring it's beginning around this time it's called Kufat Nisan and also we're beginning a new book in the Torah we're beginning the third book of the Torah the book of Vaikra or Leviticus as it is known in English because it concentrates on the work of the Levites the Levites were the ones operating the tabernacle which means that the major, the the major part, most of this book is about sacrifices. It's about giving sacrifices. What does it mean to give a sacrifice? To sacrifice of something from what I have, and of course it's very detailed. It also means we're getting into the grid of things. We're getting, we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to go into the material world in a to a, to an extent, to a degree that we haven't experienced in all the portions that we have studied so far since the beginning of Genesis. And in many ways, although this is the third and middle book in the five books of Moses, in many ways this is also a beginning. It's also, it's, this is really a week of beginnings. By the way, this whole series in, in Hebrew is called New Beginnings. This is how I call the Soul of the Parsha, series of, of uh, lessons this year because we're focusing on the first segment, the first Aliyah. Of which portion? So in Hebrew, it's called Hatchalot Chadashot, New Beginnings. So although we're we're nearing the middle of the book, we're beginning the middle book. Um, this is really, in many ways, the beginning. Why? Because it is customary in Judaism. So it's an age-old tradition that for uh, the youngest of uh, of Jewish boys, when they go into the cheder, they're going to their uh, house of study for the first time. It's like their first grade. Uh, the first thing they study is in Genesis. It isn't in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing they study is the is this part, this week's parsha, the beginning of the book of Aikra, the beginning of Leviticus. The explanation given is that the pure ones should deal, should handle, should study pure things, things of purity, matters of purity. Sacrifices have to be given in a state of purity. They have to be whole. Everything has to be absolutely perfect and pure. And we have to be very careful that nothing impure touches the sacrifices and so on. And so really it's all about purity. And it's pure children that don't have, haven't been, um, you know, they haven't sinned yet and they haven't, their lives haven't become complicated yet. They're so pure. They can deal with this. They can learn this in a very, very straightforward, very simple, very, very uh, innocent way. So this is really, in many ways, many, many beginnings. A new week, a new uh, month, a new year, in a way, uh, a new season, and a new book. So may we all marry to have a wonderful month, a wonderful year. This is the time, it's the middle of the year that began with Tishrei, but it's the beginning of a year in another way. You know, the Jewish year is really two circles intertwined, and they 
cross each other at the exact center, at the exact middle point of the year that begins with Tishrei, we have the first day of Nisan, and then in the exact middle of that year, we have Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Tishrei. So the idea is that we're now in the middle of the year that began in Rosh Hashanah, and now we're getting a new light. A new light is entering the world. A Chodesh, a month in Hebrew, is the same word as Chadash, new, newness, novelty. A new light is coming into the world to rejuvenate the year. There's a mid, just like there's a midlife crisis, there's also a mid-year crisis. So this is today, is the exact mid-year that big, of, of Tafshin Pei Aleph, the year 5781. So we're experiencing now, and you may feel this, a mid-year crisis. What have we been doing this year? What, we, what haven't we been doing this year? How much of the dreams and plans we had in Rosh Hashanah have been fulfilled? How much they haven't? There's a mid-year fatigue that's sinking in right now. And this is exactly why we're getting Rosh Chodesh Nisan, Rosh Chodeshim, the head of month, the first day of the first month. It's all beginning, this newness, this novelty, this new light is entering the world right now in order to rejuvenate it. This is a month of miracles. Nisan alludes to miracles of miracles. Nisei Nisim. So this is what we, this is the kind of atmosphere and energy uh, that we want to get into, we want to energize, re-energize our year. And this is the perfect week to do this. And of course, we're getting geared up for Pesach. And Pesach, again, is the, the month of supernatural miracles, things that totally break the mold and totally break the habits and totally break everything that constrains and limits us. And it starts really today. It starts on the first day of Nisan, and, and then it, 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 it becomes its fullest in the middle of the month, when the moon is full, which is when we celebrate Pesach. But it's starting now, the moon is beginning to appear, and this new light is beginning to enter the world right now. Also, another thing that's beginning now is a, a cycle of 12 days, in which we, uh, it's, it's customary to read how each of the Nesi'im, the Nesi'im, are the princes, or the chieftains, or the captains, the leaders of the tribes. There are the 12 tribes of the Jewish people, and each one has a nasi, a leader, a prince, a captain. And as we said last week, on the first day of Nisan, exactly, almost exactly one year after coming out of Egypt, the tabernacle was erected, and that very same day, it began its inauguration, or its dedication. And that took 12 days, because each of the 12 tribes, really there was also a 13th day to sum it all up, but the, but the 12 days, Aleph Nisan, Bet Nisan, first day of Nisan, second day, third day, 12 days, each of the Nesi'im, of the princes, uh, gave his own uh, sacrifice. That was the first sacrifice is given in the tabernacle. And so it's customary to read each day after the morning prayer, to read the description of the sacrifice given by that uh, prince. So today, the first day of Nisan, it's the, the tribe of Judah. The entire month of Nisan corresponds to the tribe of Judah, because we have, there are 12 days reflecting, like a fractal, 
the 12 months of the year. So the first month, Nisan, corresponds to Judah, and then every month corresponds to another tribe. And then on the first day of the first month, which is today, we read about the sacrifice of Nachshon ben Aminadav, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, who was the captain or prince of the tribe of Judah. He's the one who's giving his sacrifice. So this is another thing that's beginning, and is going to go with us for 12 days. And, and after we read it, they're, they're, they're all giving the exact same offerings. The Torah is repeating the exact same description 12 times. Just the name is different. The, the name of the tribe and the name of the leader is different, but the same paragraph repeats itself again and again. This all can be found in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 7, but we read it after the morning prayers in these 12 days. So it starts today, and we're also going to talk about that for a little bit in, our, in, our, in this week's class. So the topic for today, what we want to explore and think about and try and find really good advice to get us through the week and through our lives, is a very, very, a very basic fun, uh, fundamental question that we all deal with. And the question is, how do we recognize our calling? We are called upon from on high to be something, to be someone, to be our own unique selves. And to find that is to find your calling. You are being called and you need to hear the call. And more specifically, we can talk about a call to greatness. There is a call to greatness that each soul is called upon to, to find. First to hear it, and then to strive for it. But it's a tricky thing, because there's something about greatness that if you look for it, then you run the risk of inflating your ego. And then you need to deflate your ego, which means being small again. And if you're small, then maybe you're, you're, you're distancing yourself from the call to greatness, or maybe you aren't. It's a tricky, complicated thing. How to hear our true, how to recognize our true calling, as opposed to an imaginary calling, which is our own ego calling us, imagining, having delusions of grandeur, about who and what we truly are and what our calling is, as opposed to the true calling, which doesn't come from our ego, it comes from outside of us, it's really what is expected of us. How do we tell the difference between the two? And how do we balance the call to greatness with the ideal of being humble and being small and being just servants of God who receive all their energy and all their light from Him? So this is our topic for today. Why is this our topic? Why is the word call, calling so central now? Because this is the name, the Hebrew name of this portion and also of this book. The middle book of the Torah is called Vayikra. So in English, in, in, in Greek, it's called Leviticus because of, it's the word, it describes the work of the Levites. But the Hebrew name is Vayikra. Vayikra means to call. He called. It starts with God calling to Moshe, to Moses, from within the tabernacle. He calls to him, and he tells him that he should start teaching 
the Jewish people about the sacrifice, different sacrifices that they need to give. And actually it starts not with the obligatory sacrifices, but the, with the free will sacrifices. That's what it starts with. But it all starts with the call. God is calling Moshe, and the entire, not just the portion, but the entire book is called after this word, Vaikra. So there's a call. God is calling us. He wants us to call Him. There's a verse in Psalms that says, Karov Hashem lechol korav, lechol asher God is close to all those who call Him, to all, all those who call Him with truth. We could have translated this truly or truthfully, but literally it means with truth. And the, the explanation is that we need to call Him using the Torah. The Torah is God's truth, and God is calling us through the Torah, and we have to call Him back. Call me back. We have to call Him back through the Torah. The Torah is the telephone line uh, that we use to chat with God or email with God. We have to update the word, the verb every few years. The, the new technology coming along used to be telegraphed, and it's the telephone. Then it was emails, now it's chatting, and maybe some other things. So anyway, this is, this is the channel. So we need to heed the calls. We have to listen closely and, and learn closely the words of the Torah, and they teach us about this whole topic of recognizing our, our true calling. Of course, the same word in Hebrew, Vaikra, also doesn't mean just to call, it also means to read. The entire Torah, the written text, the written Torah, is called Mikra, because it's read. It's written and then it's read. And the Torah Shebaal Peh is learned orally. by you don't, It's also read, but it's not read from a text originally, before it was also written. It was all oral. So it, it wasn't called reading. Reading is from the written text, and written text is the written Torah. And the written Torah is both called and read. And it's the same word in Hebrew. There's no difference. Likro means to read a text, and it means to call someone. So God's call is heard via the text. This is the Jewish way. So we want to look very closely at the text. And it starts by looking very closely at the word Vaikra itself. And if you look closely at the word Vaikra, you see that something unusual is going on about it. Its final letter, which is the letter Aleph, it's a silent letter. You don't hear it. I mean, you don't, you don't, yeah, you don't, you, you see it, but you don't hear it. Uh, is small. It's smaller than the usual letters. And this is part of a, a whole topic in and of itself, which is that. If you go over the entire written Torah, we spoke about the written Torah. The written Torah isn't just the five books of Moses, isn't just the, what is called, the, strictly speaking, the Torah. It's the entire Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah and the books of the prophets and the writings. This is the Tanakh. And if you go over the entire Tanakh, you see an interesting phenomenon. The phenomenon is that the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each one appears once as a small version of itself, at once as an extra-large version of itself. So almost all of the letters of the Torah, of course, are the same size. That's the size of the text of the Torah. But all each, you can go, it's not in any order, but if you go over the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, you'll see, you'll find 
that each letter, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, appears once somewhere as a tiny version of itself and once as a bigger version of itself. And some of them more than once. But interestingly, uh, it's a, over the generations, a, this second usage has dropped gradually for most people who are scribes or sofreistam who write the books of the Torah. So what we end up with is that each letter appears once as a big letter and once as a small letter, and of course, you know, thousands of times as a reg- in its regular size. It's called, the large letters are called Atvan Ravrevin, big letters, or Rabati, another word for large, or Atvan Ze'erin, small letters. So, Aleph is the first of those letters, right? The first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. And the small version of the Aleph appears in our parsha, in our opening word, the opening word of the parsha and the book, Vaikra. Vaikra is five letters long. The final letter is Aleph. It, it sums up the word, and that is a small Aleph. So this is interesting. It's interesting everywhere you find a small letter or a big letter. It's interesting. It's, you need to look at it. Why is why is specifically that word that letter? Is small or big here? Why is it, you know, whenever you have something that's unusual, it means you have to ask a question. But in many ways, this is the beginning, because this is the first letter. Where is the big Aleph? If you find the small Aleph, you need to find the big Aleph also. The big Aleph is also in the first word of a book. That's very interesting. I don't think you have it in all the other letters. That You look for the pair, and they both open a book. So the small aleph is at the is the last letter of the first word of Vayikra, and the big aleph is the first letter of the first word of the book of Chronicles, Divrei Hayamim. Divrei Hayamim is the final book of the Tanakh. We're starting with the Torah. In many ways the first word that a Jewish child learns, because as we said, the Jewish child begins not with Genesis, but with Vaikra. So you have a Jewish child coming into the Cheder and opening the Torah, and the first word he reads is Vaikra, and then he encounters the small Aleph. And then later on, much later, he, finishes, he goes over the entire Tanakh, and he gets to the final book. And the final book is Divrayamim Chronicles. And he opens, now he's older, he opens the, the first page and the first word. The first verse of Chronicles is just three words long, and it merely re, re, recounts the first generations of humanity. So the first verse of Chronicles is Adam, Seth, Enosh. Adam, Shet, Enosh. The first three generations in the lineage leading up to Noah. And then the, the next verses are also just names. So the first verse of Chronicles is simply, it's not even a sentence, it's just three names. It's Adam, Seth, Enosh, Adam, Shet, Enosh, and the word Adam begins with Aleph, and that Aleph is a big Aleph. So the small Aleph is in the end of the first word here, Vaikra, and the big Aleph is in the, the beginning of the first word of Chronicles, which is Adam, Adam, Adam. Which simply, which is a double meaning word, of course. It's the name of the first man in the world, Adam. Also the first woman, according to the idea that 
they were both called Adam, as as the some verses say very clearly that they were both Adam. So it's the first human being, and and their aleph is big, but here the aleph is small. So what does it all mean? So there's a, there's a story to be told here, and the story is that uh, the Alter Rebbe, Alter Rebbe is the first Rebbe of Chabad. He took his grandchild, the future third Rebbe of Chabad, when he was just a very small kid, and it was the Alter Rebbe, his grandfather, who raised him, because his mother passed away when he was just born or when he was very young, and and so he raised him. And this is the future third Rebbe of Chabad. So he took him, when he was five years old or something like this, he took him to the Cheder, and he told the Melamed, start teaching him Vayikra, as every Jewish child should start the, the reading the Torah with the book of Vayikra. So he did so. And then the, the young child, his name, his name was later his name was Menachem Mendel. He was later called the Tzemach Tzedek after the, the book that he wrote. So the Tzemach Tzedek, the young Tzemach Tzedek, goes back to his grandfather and says, Grandfather, why is the Aleph in the word Vayikra so small? As we said, it's the first thing he encounters, the first day of his school. So, of course, the Alter Rebbe has thought about this many times. But this is the first time he's getting the question from his grandson and future follow, inheritor, you know, and carrier of the mantle. So he goes into this deep meditative state. And this is a lesson in and of itself, that even if you, you have an answer, you don't automatically, you know, spew it out. The question is new, so the answer has to be new also. He may have thought of the answer before, but he needed to reach it in a new way. Maybe also it was a new answer. But most likely it was based on things that he knew and, and thought and repeated, but he, he wanted to come up with an answer that was fully authentic, the way it came out of him. And, and this is well known, by the way, that he, there are many stories about him giving simple answers after going into this meditative state, which puzzled people, because why did you need to go into such a you know, deep reverie uh, in order to come up with such a simple answer? And and maybe we'll tell in a minute about another another example. So anyway, he goes into the state, and he says, "The thing is this: Adam, the first man, was made in God's image. His wisdom surpassed that of the angels. He he recognized his own stature." his own level of wisdom and his own level of the level of his soul but he thought highly of himself and therefore he lost all his virtues he sinned he fell moses also was a great soul and the greatest of his generation he also recognized his own stature, his own level, his own uh, advantages and gifts. But he didn't think highly of himself at all. He thought he was, and the verse says, that Moshe was the humblest of any living person in the world. He was more humble than any other person on earth. He thought 
says the Alter Rebbe to his grandchild, that if any other person in the world, Jewish or non-Jewish or old or young or wise or unwise, if any other person in the world would have had his advantages, what were his advantages? That he grew up in the palace, that he was the son of Amram, that he was seventh generation from Avraham Avinu, which is something important to be the seventh generation from someone great, and that he that he may, he merited to have God revealed himself to him in the burning bush. And if any other person in the world would have had the same advantages, they would surely have done a better job at what he was supposed to do than him. This is the meaning of that the man Moshe was humbler than any other person on earth was because he felt that he, he has all these great things, but it's only because he received this as a sort of free gift from above. He didn't do anything to deserve it, and if any other person would have received the same gifts, they would have done a better job than him with those gifts. This, is, this was Moshe's experience. So, and then the Alter Rebbe connects this to the, to the small and big letters. He says the big Aleph of Adam shows how he thought highly of himself in a negative way. And because he aggrandized himself, because he made himself so big, then he sinned and he fell. And Moshe, it's the opposite. He was also great, but he didn't think highly of himself. He thought lowly of himself. He thought of himself as something small. So this is why in our parasha, the Aleph is small. And this is why he didn't sin, and he lived to 120, which was the fullest that you could, you could reach. And he gave us the Torah, and he didn't sin. He, he remained almost uh, immaculate, almost perfect. And he didn't have this fall that Adam had. So, now this is interesting, by the way, because for several reasons. So one, there's another story about the Alter Rebbe that he also sort of uh, stopped to think about a question. The question was that some guy came to, the, came to sit with him and ask him questions. And he asked, why is it in your sect, in your Hasidic sect, in Chabad, everyone dresses one way, but the Rebbe is dressed with, all with white and with more uh, special clothes. And this, by the way, was, was, they, they, it was gradually left behind. As we all know, the Rebbe, the, the last Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the famous Rebbe, would dress exactly like every other chosid, the same black suit, same hat, nothing special. But it wasn't like that in the beginning. In the beginning, like all other chassiduyot, the Rebbe had special clothes, and they would all wear white. And you can see it in the early, in the early paintings. So he asked him, why do, why do you wear white, and you, wear, you, you, you have this special... So then he, he thought, thought about it, and finally he said, he said, you know, the chassidic group is like one big body, and all the organs are important. It's like the cells of one body. They're all important. But, but one, one person is the head. You know, one is the arm, one is the leg, one is the belly, one, one is the head. And the head, on the head you put the crown. So I happen to be the head. So I have the crown. I have the, the special clothes. So, okay, so the guy left. And then the, and then the Alter Rebbe was asked, that was such a simple answer you gave. It was so simple. All you told him was, why, do I, why am I dressed differently? Because I'm the Rebbe. What are you asking? It's such a simple such a silly question. 
of course I dress differently because I'm I'm the head of the the group. So the, I'm the head. So the head is, you know, I'm the rebbe. What do you, what do you want? So what do you have to think about it? He says I didn't have to think about the answer. I knew the answer, but I I had to make sure that I'm not answering, that I'm answering without any pride, without any gaive, without any feeling that I'm. Because the reason he asked was because he was suspicious that I was thinking too highly of myself, so I'm allowing myself to wear these special clothes. And maybe he's right. And, if, maybe, and even if he's not totally right, maybe he's a little bit right. And I had to find that little bit of pride that I had within me and make sure that I, I'm clean as much as I can be from this kind of pride. So then I can answer in a very pure, clean, straightforward way. And it wasn't, because the reason he came to me is because he was a reflection of some pride that I had. So I think it was the very same here that he, when his grandson asked him the question, he wanted to make sure that he was more like Moshe and not so much like Adam. So he says, we all have to strive to be like the small Aleph, not like the big Aleph of Adam. We have to strive to be like the small Aleph of Moshe. Now another thing that makes this interesting is that if you look at the first Rashi for this parsha, and he says, "What is the di- why is the Aleph small? A totally different answer. He says the Aleph is small in order to differentiate uh, the prophecy of Moshe and, uh, from the prophecy of non-Jewish prophets. There are non-Jewish prophets, like Bil'am, and there's a difference. The, the, the prophecy of Moshe is Vaikra with an Aleph, which means to call, which means it's, it's, there's a rapport, there's a connection between God and the Prophet in a very direct way. And the Aleph, of course, alludes to unity and to, and, and it's like a, there's, a, there's a connection, a deep connection of affection between the two. However, for non-Jewish prophets, their prophecy is more sporadic. It's not consistent. It doesn't have that special kind of affection and connection that God had, God has with Moses. So Vayikar has to do with the word mikre, which is chance, or something that happens to be in a certain way. And for example, you see with Bilam that his prophecy is only at night when he's sleeping; he, he, it's not constant. And and it's you know it's also dressed up in all kinds of images and ideas, and the idea is that it's there's something sporadic about it and something chance-like, and but so there's a differentiation made between Moshe and all the other pro- and, and non-Jewish prophets, and so why here, and connecting all this to the idea that Moshe was the humblest of all people, you you get a kind of answer. The answer is that Moshe himself wanted just to write Vayikal. He didn't want to write Vayikra. He wanted to write just the first four letters. He didn't see any difference between him and the other prophets, and non-Jewish prophets, because he was the humblest of all people. He said, I'm no better than them. If Bil'am would have had my advantages, he would have been a better prophet than I am. If any other person in the world would have had my advantages, he would have been a better prophet than I am. So I'm no, I'm no better than anyone. So he wanted to write Vayikal. And it turned out that it was God adding the Aleph <laughs> and adding this small Aleph that is like saying, no, no, but you are, you are different. You do have a different, kind, a different level of prophecy and a different level of connection with me. 
and that's why I chose you to give the Torah to the world and to the Jewish people and and, and later on to the entire world. And it, it is you, it is you, but I, I like it that you diminish yourself. So I'm going to put a small Aleph there. But Moshe, from his point of view, he just wanted to write the same word, Vayikar, that you get with other prophets, that it's it's uh, for him, he's totally equal to everyone else. But God is saying, no, you're not. So, now, let's go back to what we're dealing here with. So we have we have the usual letters of the Torah, and then we have small letters and big letters. And here we're talking about the letter Aleph, the first letter. It's also the letter of the word Adam, of course, because that's the big Aleph. It's the letter also of Elohim, of God. It's the letter of Emunah, faith. It's the letter of also Ani, me, the, the image of myself. It's a very, very basic, the first letter, very basic letter. And we see that the, the small version and the big version have very much to do with the question of how we perceive ourselves. Do we perceive ourselves as great or small? And we see that there's a deep connection between how we perceive ourselves, do we see ourselves, do we aggrandize ourselves, or do we diminish ourselves? This is very much connected to hearing the call, to hearing the calling. Vayikra, God is calling us. Are we big or are we small? Are we like Moshe? Are we like Adam? Now, if you read the the so the story about the Alter Rebbe, it seems to make it very very. Uh, very simple. It seems to suggest that um, uh, the big Aleph is negative and the small Aleph is positive. The big Aleph is Adam thinking highly of himself and that's wrong. And the small Aleph is thinking lowly, uh, uh, diminishing yourself and that's that's good. That's what it sounds like. But then comes the the the, final, the the last Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, we spoke of the first one and the third one, now we, we were going to the, the last one, the, the famous one, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who's named, by the way, after the fourth one, the one the third one, sorry, sorry, the one who's asking the question here. He was also called Menachem Mendel, because he was named after the third Rebbe. So the seventh Rebbe of Chabad looks very deeply, very carefully at this story. It's this little story about the conversation between a grandfather and, and his grandson, but he, he he listens very carefully to this story, and he says, um, "If the answer was so simple, that the big aleph is 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 negative and the small aleph is positive, the Alter Rebbe wouldn't have made it so clear that they both had great advantages and that they both recognized their great advantages." Because if you read the story carefully, it says that Adam had an amazing high stature, truly, objectively. But he is the problem was that he somehow he felt it in such a way that he he aggrandized himself, he made himself bigger. There was just cause, or it was justified in a way, but it was also unjustified. There was some justification. He really was a great soul. He was the first person in the world made in the image of God, fresh out of the oven, out of with the fingerprints of God on his on his soul. But the way he perceived himself, he somehow missed the whole point of it, and he he destroyed it. It was it, it, it was wasted in some way. 
But he had this advantage. He had this ma'ala, this great property. He really had it. And and also, the the way it's, it's, the story is written, he says that Moshe also had this advantage, this great advantage. He knew that he was a great soul. He also recognized it. This is made clear in the story. Another problem with interpreting the story as simply meaning that the big Aleph is negative and the small Aleph is positive is that if you open another place in the Alter Rebbe, not a story, an actual Torah in one of his books, you see the, a very, the complete opposite interpretation. That why is Adam's Aleph big and Moshe's Aleph small? Because Adam was great and Moshe wasn't, so, wasn't as great as Adam. So that completely contradicts the entire message of the story, it would seem, of the Alter Rebbe speaking to his grandson. So what is it? Which is it? So, so and also he says, every child knows that if, you, if a letter is big, this is a good thing. It, it means that it's a good sign. If Adam starts with a big Aleph, it, it's not in order to somehow make it that he, he was so full of pride, that he was so full of himself. The simpler, every child, you see the letter, it's a big Aleph. It's a good thing. It's a big Aleph. It's a big Aleph. It's like a capital letter in the beginning of a book, the beginning of a text. It's, it's uh, you know, it's a... It's like, a, it's like a celebration, it's something, you know, remarkable, it's something, you know, festive, you know, it's something good. So, he says we need to look deeper into this story. And now, says the Rebbe, what is really going on here is that the true message that the Alter Rebbe is giving to his grandson, if you read between the lines, and if you notice all the details, is what he's really telling him is that you need to combine a recognition of your greatness with humility. It's not just humility. It's not just that the big Aleph, that's a negative thing, and shy away from recognizing your greatness. And just think of yourself always as lowly and humble and humble and lowly. No, because then he, if he, that would have been the case, we wouldn't have found another Torah in which the big Aleph is such a positive thing, and, and the Alter Rebbe wouldn't have mentioned twice that both of them recognized their greatness, but, their pro- but the difference was that Adam sort of took it to heart that he was so great, and Moshe felt that it was just a free gift, and anyone else with the same gift would have used it in a better way, that it, was, it wasn't him, it was just a gift that he received. It wasn't him at all. So both of them objectively recognize their greatness. And that's not a negative thing. That is a very good thing to do, to have. One should recognize one's strengths. And this is just as one should recognize one's weaknesses and one's faults, what I'm not good at, what I can't do, what is, doesn't belong to me. You have to be very simply very straightforwardly, recognize your talents, your advantages, your gifts, what you're high at. We are all this sense of the big Aleph, Adam's big Aleph is a truly big Aleph. Not only because he aggrandized himself, that's another interpretation, and the two coexist and they don't contradict. Adam had true greatness. He was greater than all the angels. We are all descended from Adam, so we all have the spark of incredible divine greatness, which we should recognize, and we should 
accept it, that it's there, it's part of us. And we should recognize what part of it, what, which part of us it is, and what talent we have, and what, is, because that is the key to what we're called upon to do. But then the question is, how do we, what do we do with it now? And so the lesson that the Alter Rebbe is trying to teach his grandson, which, by the way, is a future sort of nasi, sort of prince or leader or captain or chieftain of a tribe. He's going to be the future leader of Chabad. And we all need to be leaders of a certain circle, even if it's smaller than great leaders. So we all need this lesson and this balance. We need to find a balance between recognizing the greatness of our soul, but also being very, very humble about it, not feeling that it's because we have... You know, the th it's, a very, it's, a, it's a tricky thing here. The thing is, to see that you have it within you, but not to feel, not to let it take over your self-image in a way that you feel that you are the one that's great and you are the one that's talented and you are the one that's special and also that you are the one deserving of all kinds of, you know, whatever, honors and respect or money or whatever it is. No, the, the balance that Moshe was able to have, but Adam not, is the balance between recognizing your greatness but not feeling yourself to be the source of it. And not feeling yourself to be in many it's like a it's like you're fortunate enough to have it. And also it obligates you. It's not something that you now sort of, you know, pat yourself on the back and I have this and that talent and I have this and that property and I'm so good. And because it's you have it in order to use it, to do something with it. It means you have responsibility. And you have a purpose. You need to do something. If you're not doing it, you're wasting everyone's time. And you're wasting the gift that was given to you. So you need to go ahead and, and use it. So it means that, and that makes you smaller, not bigger. Because the, the more responsibility you have, the more you don't, you know, let yourself inflate. Your responsibility deflates you. Because you need to be going ahead and doing things. So this is a very, this is the balance we're talking about here. If you rec if you just go to one end and you recognize your advantages and your, your gifts and your talents and all this, and you just focus on that. And you know, there's one approach that people use in, in, when encouraging other people is that they give a lot of compliments to other people. And they say, one, you should compliment yourself. And you should stand in front of the mirror and tell yourself that I am great and I am talented and I can do it and I can win and I'm a winner and I'm all this. This is one. Of, this is an approach that exists in the world. We know this. Of thinking highly of yourself all the time. So on the one hand, clearly, it's very uplifting to tell yourself that you're great and you can do it and you don't have to be afraid and it's no big deal for you and you can, you can manage it and all this. On the other hand, what you don't notice is that as you're doing this, you're complicating, you're, you're setting yourself up for the next fall. Why? Because the more you pump up the self-image, the more it becomes 
the harder it becomes when it's punctured. You know, it's like a big balloon that the more you inflate it, the tiniest of pricks can just make it explode, and then you'll fall, and then you'll collapse. There's a well-known research, there's a well-known book called Mindsets, and it talks about two basic mindsets that people have, which is a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And one of the, one of the characteristics of a fixed, which is not a good thing, of the fixed mindset is that people constantly think, instead of thinking about what they're doing and if it's interesting or not, or if, uh, if they like it or not, they think about what people will think about them when they do it, meaning they're the, in the center, not the act itself or the, the topic that they're studying, then they become terrified of failure. And when they're terrified of failure, they don't try anything new. That's why they're fixed. The fixed mindset is that I'm so terrified that if I'm, I've accustomed myself to be successful in one thing and to getting constantly, you know, feedback from reality that you're great and you're good and you're wonderful and everything is good. And then you can't bear the thought that you'll do something and you wouldn't be amazing when you do it. You'll just be okay when you do it. And that is terrifying to you, so you don't do anything new. However, someone who has a growth mindset doesn't put himself in the center. He says, I don't care what people think about me. I, this is an interesting thing to try out. So I'm going to try it, and, it's, and it probably won't come, up so won't come out so good, but, uh, but it'll be a start, and then I'll get better, and then I'll have fun doing it, and, and you know, good things will come to the world. And, and the fun is not in me, the fun is in the thing that I'm doing. And then, th that's a growth mindset, you grow. So the idea is here that if you just go with the approach that says, compliment yourself, strengthen yourself, look in your mirror and tell yourself that you're great and you're amazing, it's a very, very short-term kind of help. In the long run, it'll make you weaker. It'll create this enormous idol, subconscious idol, that you have of yourself, you'll take your true potential, the big Aleph, the positive big Aleph, and you'll turn it into a negative big Aleph. It'll be the pumped-up version of who, I'm, who I imagine myself to be, and then you wouldn't be able to bear it when, you, when, you'll come, when you'll realize that you're not so great and amazing in everything you do. You're also just human and frail, and small, and fallible, and and then, and if you're fallible, it means you fall, but you won't be able to fall, you'll, you won't fall, you'll, you'll crash, you'll, you'll crash and collapse completely, because you place yourself so high, and the higher you go, in physics there's something called potential energy, potential energy is, is the, the higher you lift something up, then the more potential energy it has, and when you let go of it, it's going to fall with greater strength. And so the higher you think of yourself, the more you're setting yourself up for the next fall. However, it's also very clear that if you only go with the approach, the opposite approach, of just saying every day that I'm nothing, and I'm worthless, and everything that I have is, it's not, it's not me at all. There's something about this that sets you free from false expectations, 
and from imaginary, you know, self-worth that I deserve all kinds of things. And then, and then when you don't get them, you say, well, you know, I, I didn't expect to get them because I, I, I do have faults and I don't merit. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I, I have to work on myself. I have to be better. There's something wonderful about lowliness and humility and, and you know, not going around the world feeling that you're, uh, you deserve all kinds of things because that really, that really makes you very miserable if you constantly walk around feeling that you deserve this and that or the other. And you have to think about what you can, how you improve yourself, how you better yourself. That's a totally different mindset. But if you only go with this kind of approach, you won't recognize your own strengths and talents and your innate greatness that is truly there. So what the Rebbe is very gradually doing, looking closely, opening up the this little story about the Alter Rebbe and his grandson, is that he shows you that in between the lines there's also a positive big Aleph and the negative small Aleph. So the balance is, it really goes like this. We have two selves. There are two eyes, two sense of I. Just like we have two eyes, we also have two eyes, as in the letter I, as in I, me. We have the lower I, which is in Hasidut, it's called the Nefesh Behemit, the animal soul. This, by the way, appears in the very next verse. The very next verse, the, the word Adam appears again in the very next verse. It says, Adam ki yakriv mikem korban la'ashem in a if a man were to sacrifice from within, from a, man, a, a man from among you will sacrifice. A sacrifice, it should be from the behemah, from the animal, from the cattle. So the word Adam appears, it's not just going all the way to Chronicles. The word Adam appears in the very next verse, and it talks about giving a sacrifice, and the sacrifice comes from your behemah. And the way it's phrased in Hebrew, it should have said, Adam mikem ki akriv. If one of you should make a sacrifice, but it doesn't. It says, Adam ki akriv mikem. And so you can read it. If any of you should make a, a sacrifice, it should come from within you. You should sacrifice a part of you, not just an external animal. It's also a part of you. Which part of you? The animal soul. So we have an animal soul, which is the, our lower objectively smaller self. This is the small Aleph, the small self. It's just an animal. An animal is small-minded and it does. It can't see the other person truly. It can't think of, appreciate God. It doesn't have godly consciousness. And that's the small Aleph that we have. That's the small me, the small I. And then we have the divine soul. And the divine soul is the big Aleph. That's the that's the great I. That's the true, full, high, you know, lit up potential that you have. That you are the truly great soul, much greater than your body and your animal soul. But the thing is that the way these two souls perceive them perceive themselves is the exact opposite of what they truly are. The animal soul is very small. It's a very small olive, but it thinks of itself as as very very big. Why? Because it thinks of itself all the time. So it, it thinks of itself, so then it takes the little Aleph that it has, the little Ani, and this little Ani is, you know, 
it, it holds up the sign saying and in front of its in front of its eyes so it becomes huge and it thinks that this is the big Aleph it's the small Aleph the small me the animal soul thinks this I'm the big Aleph I'm the big me I'm everything I'm the center of the world however the high the higher self which is truly the big Aleph it's the big it's my higher self my bigger self right my lower self is like my smaller self but the small self think of itself highly and my higher self which is the big Aleph thinks of itself as nothing as very very small as very tiny and the opposite is true the truth is that my higher self is a huge Aleph but it thinks of itself very as something very small why because it doesn't think of itself it thinks about God and God is infinite and because God is infinite you become infinitesimally small and in Hebrew you can see this in the words Ani and Ein same letters both begin with Aleph two Alephs two Anis the Ani of the animal soul is Ani me and the Ani of the divine soul is Ein which is nothingness that's how it, it is it isn't nothing it's that this is my higher bigger self but that's how it experiences itself. There's a, a line in the Zohar which this idea perfectly uh, reflects. There's a, a sort of paradoxical line in the Zohar that says, He who is great is small, and he who is small is great. Man de'ihu rav, ihu ze'ir, man de'ihu ze'ir, ihu rav. The same letters, but the same words used for the big letters and the small letters. So how do we understand this paradoxical sentence? It means that he who perceives himself to be great is truly small, this is the animal soul, and this is what we have to sacrifice. And he who perceives of himself as small is truly big, and this is the divine soul. So what are we sacrificing? We're sacrificing the notion that our lower self is truly the bigger self. It isn't. It isn't. This, I'm just human, and I'm small, and I'm no better than other people. And this is what Moshe was able to achieve. He didn't think of himself as better than anyone else. He did appreciate that he has all these gifts, that he was able to speak with God face to face, that he was able to give this prophecy, that he was able to become so eloquent, and to, to you know, he starts out stammering, he ends up, you know, giving this huge monologue, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy, the book of Dvarim. He became the greatest speaker in the world. He recognized all this. That's how he was able to lead. But he also felt that it's it's not me. It's not really me. My 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 own self is. He he put it back into into proportion. He says I'm I'm just human. I'm just a regular human being. But I was given this greatness, this great duty, this great gift. So I'm using it because I have to use it. But you do you use whatever you get. That's why I was giving this. He was very, very, you know, lucid with himself. He was very plain. He, was, he didn't complicate himself. He, be, he starts a little bit complicated when he says, I don't deserve the mission, I can't speak very well, they won't believe me in the burning bush. But then, when, he, when God convinces him, he says, yeah, well, you, it'll be okay. I know you stammer, and I know, I know, you're, I know they won't believe you. I'm going to help you. You have your brother. You'll have some miracles. I'll, I'll be with you. Don't worry. He, when he gets over that, he he goes all the way. 
and he recognizes both levels of himself. So this is very this is the main point we want to make. We want to now connect this also with the Nisi'im, with the the princes of the tribes. Because really the question of am I small or am I great, which here, as we again, it, it goes, it refers to the, your two selves. You truly have two selves. And if you look at the world from your the point of view of your lower self, you feel yourself to be great, but you're deluding yourself. You're not so great. You're 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 just a person, just human being, and we're all, you know, mortal and fallible and 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 tiny and and very narrow, short sighted. That's what we are. And 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 you have the temptation to aggrandize yourself, but you should really work hard on not doing it. On the other hand, you have a you have a very high, lofty, incredible. Great soul that's very shy and humble. And that's your big Aleph, but it's a quiet Aleph. And it presents itself as small. And you should identify and strengthen that Aleph, the Aleph of the higher self. And if that is your true I, in as much as that is your true I, and it is your truest self, then you truly are a great human being. And a great soul, you're bigger than all the angels. But you have to have both ends of the of the equation. So now the question of am I a great or am I small, with the answer being, you know, both answers are true, is also very much connected to the question, am I special or am I not special? Being great is almost synonymous to being special. Being small is, is synonymous with being not special, being just again, like a like a any human being, just like Moshe experienced himself to be no better than anyone else. Is I'm not special. Greatness and specialness, in a way, you can say that that if you're if you're humble, you're not just thinking of yourself as small. You're thinking of yourself as as regular, just a regular guy. And and in as much as you do have a high self, a higher great self, then you have a spark of the greatness of Adam the true greatest of Adam, before he he used abused it. But it's a different spark for each and every one. Each one of us is a different spark from Adam. So when you when we're focusing on the our great our potential for greatness, that is very, very special. That is very, very unique. How do we manifest that uniqueness? And it's again it's the same tricky thing. If you try to be special and unique, that means you think of yourself as special. If you think of yourself as special, you you lose it. You become very unoriginal, and very uh, and you, it's just all about your ego. On the other hand, you do have something very special about you, but it needs to come out in a way that you don't. You're not looking to be special. You're just looking to see what what your gift is, what your talent is, what your calling is. So we see this very, very beautifully play out in what happens with the Nesi'im from the time of building the tabernacle, which we talk, spoke about last week, to the time of the actual dedication of the tabernacle, which is what we read now after the prayers, when we finish the prayer, when we're reading about their sacrifices, beginning with Arif Nisan. In the building of the tabernacle, 
they thought of themselves as very special. They said, we are not part of the regular people. When God is asking for contributions to the Mishkan, he's not talking about us. He's talking about regular people. So they're, And so they'll give what they need to give, and, and we'll come at the very end, and we'll see if what's missing. And if something is missing, we'll, com- we'll, we'll, uh, we'll add it. We'll add what needs to be added. What happened? All the people, the regular people, who didn't think highly of themselves, they brought everything, all the cloth and all the animals and all the wood and all the gold and all the silver and all the brass and everything. They gave everything. And then the, the Nesi'im, the captains came, the princes came in the end and said, well, is there anything missing? And they were told, yeah, the one thing is missing. We don't have these precious gems to place on the breastplate of the head priest. And they said, wonderful, we each have a gem. Each one of us has his own gem. That's a heritage from our... Uh, from the, the son of uh, Jacob that we, we, we are descendants of. So Judah, the tribe of Judah had a gem, the tribe of, of Yisachar, each one, they all had a gem. And each one gave their gem, and every gem is completely unique and individual, and they were set within the breastplate, and there was their contribution. And it was very precious, of course, precious gems. And it was all about their uniqueness and being special. And and it, be- it began with the fact that they saw themselves as special, and they really were very special, because each gem was very different. And, and the gems were all placed in the breastplate. And yet, because they differentiated themselves so much from the regular people, the Torah rebuked them. And they were mentioned in the previous parasha without any yuds. It was just nun, sin, Aleph Mem. It was shortened. It was the, the words were cut short, and there, it was like a kind of punishment. They were diminished because they didn't diminish themselves. They thought of themselves as special, and they were special. They had those special gems. But something was missing. What was missing? Their self diminishment. Their feeling that although they're special, they're also not special. They're also just part of the Jewish people. They're the, they're the princes, they're the chieftains, they're the head of the tribes, but they're also part of the tribe. They're also just like any other, any other simple Jew. That they didn't appreciate. They only felt that they were so special and unique, and they were. But that's the only thing they focused on. So what they gave was those special gems. What was missing? What was missing was a sense of simple solidarity and conformity in which you're just like everyone else, and you're not special. Where did, where was this added? Where, when did they rectify themselves? When the tabernacle was finished, and then on the 12 days of Nisan, which is now and tomorrow, and the next 12 days, they each brought the exact same sacrifice, which is phrased in the Torah with the exact same words, again and again, 12 times. It's the same one cow and one ram and one goat and one lamb, and it's all one, the same thing, the same, same paragraph, 12 times. Meaning, I'm not special, I'm not unique, I'm not original, I'm not my own particular special kind of gem or snowflake. I'm just like all the other ones, and I'm, this is the, I'm just giving this, 
the sacrifices. I'm sacrificing my sense of uniqueness, my sense of being special, which, is, which comes from my animal soul. So I have to give and give. And interestingly, what happened in the first time that they all gave their own unique gem, and it was a wonderful thing because, again, it was, they, they truly were unique. They didn't imagine themselves to be unique. They truly were unique. But then the Torah rebuked them by diminishing the, the, their word, their name. But now it's the opposite. They all come very humble and they give the exact same sacrifice. But then the sages come and say, Ah, you think it's the same paragraph 12 times? You're wrong. You should read each one totally differently. You should imagine like a different music, a different kavana, a different intention. And if they all thought when they gave it, each one had a very, very unique thought and a unique kavana, unique intention, a unique experience when he gave it. And you have to study it differently every time. So it's the first day of Nisan, you read about Judah. It's the same words, but they're, they're, Jude, they're Judah's words. So they, they have Judah's atmosphere and energy and shade and everything about it. Not because they're trying hard to be special, but simply because they are naturally special. The light of their gem is simply there. It shines between the lines, between the words that are identical. And then the next day, it's, I think it's Issachar the next day, it's his own thing, it's different. Same words, but totally different intention. So when they try to be special, the Torah rebuked them. When they don't try to be special, the Torah says, oh, they're so special. They're so different. You have no idea how different they are. Don't let the identical words mislead you to thinking that they're so, that they're, they're, they're uh, the same. They're not the same at all. Each one is completely different. So we can say that uh, this is something I realized when I was about in high school, and I, that was the beginning of my realization when I studied in, 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 in art high school. And because it wasn't classical art uh, training, classical training, you're taught not to be special. And then maybe you'll, you'll end up being special. But I, I was the victim of postmodern uh, art studies. And from from early age, from the very early age, to far too early, we were encouraged to be very special. So I remember the pressure to be special and the pressure to have a unique style and a unique way of... I was just 14, 15. And you try to, to, to be so special in the way you paint and the way you draw. And what you end up with, with is just... It's totally banal. It's totally... It's a, just cliche after cliche. You're just copying other people because of the pressure, the paradoxical, self-contradictory pressure to be special. So what I ended up realizing, and this is exactly what the Nesim are realizing also, is that what is the biggest enemy of individuality? What is the biggest enemy of being an individual? You would think it's being part of a collective or being, or conformity is the biggest en- enemy of individuality that's wrong. The biggest enemy of individuality is individualism. Is when you when you think, when you idealize the idea that you're an individual, that's when you you your individuality comes crashing down and you, you lose sight of it. So it's the same idea we had about the two Alephs, but now it's slightly different focus. 
and it's of course beautiful that it all comes into Alif Nisan and, and this week's parsha and the reading of the Nesim. When we spoke about the two Alifs, the focus was on greatness versus littleness. That you have greatness within you, but it, the, your greatness is something very small and subtle and very high, and, and it doesn't think of itself as high. And it, it, you feel that it's a gift that you received without deserving it, that, that if anyone else would have received it, they would have been done a better job than you. It's not me, but I, but I got it, so I'm using it. And if you think about yourself as something great and special and uh, important, then it's really it's all coming from your animal soul, which is really the small Aleph making itself the big Aleph. And now we have a different angle, a different perspective on the same idea, but focusing on the, on the axis of special ver- or original versus regular, which is what the Nesim are all about. When they thought of themselves as special, and again, they had grounds for doing so because they had their special gems, the Torah doesn't appreciate it so much. But when they came very, you know, humbly and, and, and gave the exact same sacrifice, the Torah tells us, wow, they were so special, so different, because they didn't try to be different, because they, they simply came uh, unassuming and without um, the presumption to be so special. So these are two perspectives and really the same idea which is that your greatness and your uniqueness is something that needs to come about out of you, flow out of you in a way that you're, uh, you don't try hard to be this, this great or special kind of person. You're just trying, beginning with a very, very, uh, very lowly perception of yourself to just appreciate your strengths, your talents, your gifts, and use them in an unassuming, unpretentious way. And then, God willing, you'll really shine. You'll really shine, and you'll find your calling. And, you're, and it'll be very clean. It'll be, cl- it'll be pure. It wouldn't be tarnished by a kind of image of yourself as being this great, amazing, uh, you know, one in a lifetime, you know. So the whole world has been waiting for you. All this really doesn't help. It doesn't help you find your calling. So may we all merit to find this balance within us. You know, it's a life's work, but we have the guiding light of the Torah that gives us these beautiful ideas of how to how to find these two elements within us, these two levels, and how to take what's the self-aggrandizing part and make it smaller, and take the the humble part and make it bigger. And and then things are restored to their to their natural true state, and and then our individuality and our greatness can really really shine forth, and we can really go ahead and fulfill what we were meant to fulfill. And it's a good time now, we're in the middle of the year, to summon the strength, and to summon the inspiration, to use the remaining of the year, and we can use this month to really uh, energize ourselves in order to go ahead and do everything that we were we're called upon to do and that we're expected to do and and run with it and go with it all the way so this is our class for this week's parsha